Hey guys, it's me, Diana, from the Diana Piquet Show. Thank you so much for listening in today. Today is the part one of a three-part series that I did with my friend Jennifer Cooper about the state of affairs of race relations in America right now. And Jennifer is always amazing to talk to about a variety of subjects, um, but this subject is a little cringy to listen to at times because she has to stop and correct me. Um, and it's hopeful and it's joyful and it's super sad and there's frustration. And it just is a great conversation between two friends about what we can do to come together and stand up a little taller and stronger and come together as a nation. So I really loved talking to her today. I was super nervous to do it, but I thought it came out great, and I'm excited for you to listen to it. Please enjoy. Ready to start chatting? Yeah. Okay. Is there any any particular direction you wanted to go? Um, I mean, my head is in a thousand and one directions, so I will leave that up to you. Just because I'm, oh, I'm I, my brain feels very scattered right now. I'm sure. Yeah. Okay. Well, I made some notes because. Honestly, um, the gravity of this whole thing to me, I feel very nervous speaking about it because I want to do it justice. And I certainly don't feel like I have any professional training or like anything like that. I mean, just friend to friend, it's, you know, it, to me, this is a really, really big deal. And I'm at 48 years old, really having a hard time even finding my voice to say anything or like what would my place even be or what right would I have so I wrote down a lot of questions because I just wanted to make sure that I wasn't totally fumbling yeah the whole thing absolutely right okay so first off um I just wanted to say thank you so much for talking to me about it and I feel like people of color must be completely exhausted um and I was wondering what it's like to see this happen to you, to people of color over and over again. And is there like a sort of re-traumatization that you go through every time that it happens? Um, it's, it is fatiguing. Um, it's something that people like myself have, we've grown up this way. We've grown up with this knowledge. And mm -hmm. so it, there, there is a, a you know, a re-traumatization that occurs because it's really never gone away and it just gets quiet and then it, it builds up again. So, mm -hmm. you know, a part of, I think what's happening is a lot of people are done and they're ready for this pot to boil over because it's been going on for as long as our families can remember. Mm -hmm. um, so there's, you know, there's a lot of people, including people like yourself, that feel like there's just, there's no more being quiet about it. And mm -hmm. being quiet about the way that you're feeling and the changes that you want to see are such a huge disservice. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I'm so grateful for friends like you who feel like, man, I don't, I don't know enough to feel comfortable saying something, but I'm going to figure out how to say something. And, um, you know, even for myself, I'm not, you know, I'm not, I'm not one who's really outspoken. I speak out about the things I feel strongly about, 
But I also, as a light-skinned Black person, am able to operate in a world that dark-skinned Black people historically have not been able to operate in with ease. And with that mm-hmm. comes a responsibility. And, you know, that's been my own personal issue that I've had to deal with over my life. Um, but I, I can't be quiet anymore. And I can't be concerned about what my coworkers think or what my community thinks or what my neighbors think because I live in a you know, very white area of Orange County, which is mostly white anyways, but um, I just, I, I can't, I can't be afraid anymore for what anyone thinks. And mm-hmm. I feel like, uh, you know, my friends and people who live in my neighborhood also can't be afraid anymore. So we have to figure out a way to navigate through it together um, mm-hmm. because enough is enough and everyone's just done. We're all just done. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, it, for me, there's not been, you know, I've never been the type of person that wouldn't shed a tear over seeing something like this happen on TV, but because I don't feel like, first of all, I'm a political person and I don't feel like I'm a confrontational person. I feel like I'm a working person and I'm a friend person. I'm a volunteering person. And I kept my head down and kept my, I felt like, okay, if I keep my head down and do what I'm good at, then other people are going to figure this out. You know, like legitimate people who have studied this, who are professors or who are politicians or something, surely somebody's going to figure this out because this can't go on. And what I'm coming to for me is that, oh my gosh, you know, making dinner and changing a diaper and putting the kids to bed and being a good friend and bringing a casserole when someone's spouse dies is not enough anymore. Yeah. I have to step up and do something. And I certainly don't know exactly what it is to do, but I have to start somewhere. So I loved that when I said that online um, is fumbly and, you know, silly as I felt like I was sounding like, I just didn't feel like my, I'm like, gosh, I've written better things about products than I like than I'm writing now <laughs> because I was just so freaking frothed up and upset. Yeah. Um, I loved that you reached out to me and said, Hey, I'm, I'm going to read this book, get this book. And I remember, I mean, I cried all day mm-hmm. and poor Thomas is like, what can I do? And I'm ordered to be this book. Just get, let's do something. Yeah. So I got the book and I haven't gone very far, but I've gotten, I think about as far as you have in, um, I've already learned so much. I, I loved your video that you put up about it last night. And I thought that you probably taught anybody who watched that something. Um, can you speak a little bit about that video? And, and yeah, you know, it's, it's life is really busy for all of us. And, um, you know, there's, there's a couple thoughts on education right now in the black community. There are people like me who one want to educate themselves as much as possible and then also want to educate my community. And I have um, my longest time best friend. Well, one of them, her name is Monica. You met her. Um, mm-hmm. We talked when everything really started hitting hitting the, the wall here. And she lives in Laguna and I live in Huntington Beach. And we're like, we live in these very, very unracially educated areas. Like, what are we going to do? Like, we're not protesters anymore. I was a protester before I had kids. I can't do that anymore. I'm a mother and I can't mm-hmm. put my life in jeopardy. And right now going out and trying to protest is very dangerous on both sides. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so we're talking about as, as moms, what can we do in our community? And we came up with the the choice to try to educate and 
start reading and, and telling our friends like, hey, get this book, read this book with me and kind of see right. who shows up and see who's really interested in doing the work because those are your people. Um, right. But then there's other people in the black community that are like, no, it's not my job to teach you. How do you not know this already? Like, it's your job to go out and find what you need to learn in order to be better educated. I also get that side of the fence. So I'm not saying that that's wrong. That's just not my approach. I, I, I want to educate myself and I want to give people who want to learn the opportunity to get the good information from where it, it should come from. And mm-hmm. so in you know, my original post about doing the book, I did reach out to some people and I um, posted online that I'd be reading it and that I would like to do a book club. But I understand as a mom and as just a human who's trying to navigate through COVID and this racial divide that time's hard. It's, it's having time for your family, having time to work. It's really hard. And so I know that I have a small group of people that will make time to sit down and, and talk about it when we can all get our schedules to align. But at the same time, I still don't want the information just to stop there. And so, you know, I read yesterday and that part of the book really jumped out at me. And I thought, well, I'll I'll type a post about it and just let people like follow along via the post without the commitment of having to have a book club type discussion. And then as I started Mm -hmm. typing all the words, I'm like, this is just too many words. (laughs) Like, no one's, Mm -hmm. there's so much content online right now that to read and read and read just a singular post, unless it really catches your attention is hard. But I know that if I post a video, which is something that I don't often do, that my friends will read it. My friends will follow it. My friends will Mm -hmm. come on this journey with me through that format. And so Mm -hmm. I, um, took a page out of your book and I sat in my kitchen and I just kind of talked about what I read and what I thought was important. And a part of the, 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 the life process for black Americans in, in, in slavery and how I don't think conceptually, a lot of people understand why black people feel and have been so oppressed I think there's, you know, this understanding that they were slaves, yes, at one point, but then they became free. And so at that point, like, yeah, I'm sure it was hard, but they've had an opportunity to make their own way. No, they haven't. (laughs) And this Mm -hmm. is why they have it. And I think it's really important for people to understand that they have been held back. We have been held back for as long as we have been on this soil. And Mm -hmm. I feel like I feel like bridging that gap will really help people understand why black communities are still suffering so much. So that was kind of my motivating factor behind choosing the book, trying to do the book club and then, you know, further wanting to get the information out of there by doing the video. Yeah, I loved watching you speak. Um, You're a great looking girl (laughs) for starters. You're a babe, but also um, it's very engaging to watch you speak about the subject because I the part that you spoke about was in the introduction, yeah. and I read the inter- introduction myself, and then I was so enthralled with the introduction that I actually read it to Thomas, and he was like, "Wow!" And I said, "Did you know that?" And he's like, "No, I didn't know that." Yeah. But I highlighted some of these areas. Um, so basically for everyone who's listening, what Jen, what Jen, uh, talked about was that there was a 22 year old man named green Cottenham Mm -hmm. and he was arrested by the sheriff 
of Shelby County in Alabama and charged with what was called vagrancy. And can you talk about vagrancy? Yeah, so vagrancy was a, a term or an infraction that was basically made up by the local jurisdictions and gave them cause to arrest people. But it was primarily directed at Black men. I mean, it was solely directed at Black men. Totally, yeah. Um, and so what vagrancy meant was that if in fact, you were seen by a police officer or a cop and you had no proof of employment that you were arrested mm-hmm. for simply that fact. Mm-hmm. And can and, you imagine yeah. how hard it would be as a black man in 1908 to always have a job? I mean, oh, it's hard mean, to always have a job right now. We're talking about this man was the youngest son of a slave, of a freed slave, but still he was the youngest son of a slave. He is the first generation of a group of oppressed people. Mm -hmm. And so, and in the South, there were a lot of people who did not believe that it was okay for slaves to be free. So it wasn't like the law got passed and everyone was like, oh, happy rainbows. Now these people can go out into society and live normal, happy, full lives. No, there was a huge undercurrent of aggression and hate. And they were still in the minds of their communities, slaves. Mm And so a, a lot of people didn't have jobs and the jobs they did have weren't far from the jobs that they did as slaves. Right. And so, so they would um, scoop, it, they would they, scoop these boys up and they would give them basically no lawyer and a quick sentencing and basically say, okay, you yeah. are a vagrant and therefore you have to do a month of hard labor and then you have mm-hmm. to pay some fines. But what would happen if they didn't have the money to pay the fines? Cause obviously they don't have the money if they don't have a job. So then what would happen? Correct. So if they didn't have the money to pay fines, and as you said, they didn't, um, their term for their their sentencing got extended mm-hmm. out. So they would have to do more time of what, and the sentencing was always considered, quote unquote, hard labor. Mm-hmm. And so their time would get extended out to uh, cover whatever their fees were. And that fee was to be paid by a company that they would be doing this hard labor for would pay directly to the county Mm -hmm. that had arrested them. And so it, it became one of the first ways to re-enslave black men through a system of violating a law, Mm -hmm. not being able to pay the fine for the, for the law that was violated. And the fines were astronomical at the time, given the infraction and then being sold or paid for to the county to offset that fine by a company that required impossible hard labor, which often resulted in death. Okay, so Green's hard labor, Mr. Cottenham's hard labor was at 22 years old, he was lowered into a mine. It was called Slope 12. It's lowered into mm-hmm. a mine. He basically, to my understanding, he was chained down there and it was his job to remove eight tons of coal a day or else he was correct is that what you read too correct correct and so that was his that was his lot in life yep yep and so and the the u.s what was it called u.s steel they would pay 12 dollars a month to have him do that labor is that correct Correct. So U.S. Steel was the the um, the larger conglomerate that what that worked with the counties. Mm-hmm. Um, but he was his particular um, 
company that he was then purchased by was Tennessee Coal, Iron, and Railroad mm-hmm. Company. So the um, the U.S. conglomerate kind of worked with these other small sectors to then send these men out to them as they needed mm-hmm. them. And I remember reading that the arrests would ramp up. Like you were more likely to get arrested for vagrancy or for talking too loudly to a white woman if there was labor needed. And you wouldn't necessarily yes. be arrested if they didn't need laborers at the time. Correct. Okay. Um, and so imagine like if you've done anything in your community, so say they didn't need laborers at this time, but you had done something within your community that flagged the attention mm-hmm. of a, a white person who it offended them or upset them. Mm-hmm. You instantly became a high risk mm-hmm. target. And the moment that the call came in that they needed you, I mean, sure. along with any other black male, you also became a clear target. So stepping out of line and standing up for yourself was never an option. <laughs> you know, it got me thinking about the whole like baby daddy thing about women who mm-hmm. women, they said in there that women did not get caught up in this primarily because women are not as physically strong as men. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. So women don't get caught up in it, but they get caught being a single parent because men are put into slope 12 essentially. Yeah. And so that starts that whole cycle of the women who are raising the children alone because dad's gone. Yes. Which you still see all of the time today in black America. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I read a passage on, on the third page that said this, what would be revealed if American corporations were examined through the same sharp lens of historical confrontation as the one being trained on German corporations that relied on Jewish slave labor during World War II and the Swiss banks that robbed victims of the Holocaust of their fortunes? And I think that's pretty interesting because we did, we did think that German corporations were horrible and made them pay reparations. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But what, I mean, whatever happened to U.S. Steel? Um, I don't know whatever happened to U.S. Steel, but what I do know, and that's part of what is, is really starting to come to light now, is that in the United States, the infrastructure for slavery and racism towards Black people is so deeply ingrained in our society, mm-hmm. and people don't realize it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, to your thought earlier when you said, I had just made the assumption that it's a really big problem. Someday someone's going to take care of it. Mm -hmm. And I think when I was probably younger, I thought the same thing. Because when you're a kid, you think that people are capable of making all kinds of changes that they really wanted to. So I think to a degree, I just figured that it would get better. Mm -hmm. But as I've gotten older, I've seen how (laughs) it's so rampant in our society it's so deeply entwined in to our lives and the businesses that we support in our government and you know i saw and by no means and am i saying that i think that destruction is okay because i do not at all i think it's the completely wrong way to go about what we're trying to do here but i also understand why it happens Mm -hmm. but there was a post the night that the white house had turned its lights out and Um, Trump went into the bunkers Mm -hmm. and someone had said it was something super negative about, I hope they burn it down. And I was like, wow, that's real intense. But the person behind them said, well, if that did happen, it'd be nice to have a white house not built by slaves. 
and <laughs> it's I, I think my point is that our economic society would completely collapse and maybe it needs to because that's how deeply ingrained it is in our society and i'm not saying that every business operates this way but the foundation for some of the largest corporations in our society is built on having managing supporting racism and I think that doing the unraveling would really start bringing a lot of stuff down. That's super powerful or what I think it is so interesting when we make a safe place for each other to be able to be vulnerable, make mistakes, fumble, and just really talk and answer and ask great questions. So I hope you enjoyed part one. Um, if you'd like to listen to part two, that should be coming out soon. Thanks for listening.